You need to pay for tomorrow's growth, but today's cash flow just doesn't quite cover it. So what do you do when you need inventory funding now? Welcome to Kick Further. Kick Further funds up to 100% of the cost of inventory up front, and you don't have to pay them back until that inventory begins to sell. Kick Further funding is not a loan, doesn't appear as debt on your books, and does not require equity. It's just capital right at the moment you need it to pay your most expensive cost, your inventory. Kickfurther has already supported over 1,000 opportunities, including working for brands that you may know like Dr. Squatch and Good Wipes. To see how much inventory funding you qualify for today, go to kickfurther.com slash startupcpg. That's kickfurther, K-I-C-K-F-U-R-T-H-E-R.com slash startupcpg, kickfurther.com slash startupcpg to learn more. Hey, listeners, would you like the chance to be featured on this podcast and on Startup CPG's live LinkedIn show, The Dish? If you buy a ticket for our mic drop party at Expo East by August 31st, you'll automatically be entered for a chance to win a spot on both shows. The Dish is our conversational LinkedIn live show hosted by Jenna Mopsovitz, and I'll join as well for a special episode that'll be featured on this podcast across all podcast players. The Mic Drop Party is the evening of Thursday, September 21st during Expo East in Philadelphia. During the party, we'll be featuring backpack brands and some of the incredible party guests signed up so far include retailers like Kroger, Whole Foods, Bristol Farms, media companies, and VCs. It's a karaoke venue, so get ready to sing or just come to network and sample the backpack brands, which will be announced in Slack. We expect the mic drop party to sell out, so get your ticket today at the link in the show notes, and we'll announce the winners the day after the party. Please note you must attend the party in person to be eligible, and this offer is only available for CPG brands. And if you already bought a ticket, good news, you're already entered. See you in Philadelphia. Knowing the landscape of options available to you and knowing the limitations of certain types of policies is really important. And understanding how your needs are going to change over time so that you can make a decision that you're comfortable with and that you made because you knew all the information that was relevant to you. Welcome to the Startup CPG Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Freitag. I don't always love talking about insurance, but I do love talking about insurance with today's guest, Daniel Holyoke, because I always learn so much and end up feeling more empowered with knowledge. Danielle is the CRO and co-founder of Amelia Risk, a CPG insurance brokerage equipped to handle all lines of commercial insurance. And I actually met Danielle through the startup CPG Slack back in 2021 when she helped me with an urgent insurance issue. And she's still my go-to insurance contact today. Last year in 2022, Danielle came on the show for a CPG Insurance 101 level episode of Let's Demystify Insurance, How to Navigate Insurance in CPG, which is linked in the show notes and may be helpful to listen to before or after this episode as it's packed with really great information about general liability, product liability, recall, and workers' comp insurance. Today, we'll continue our 101 level CPG insurance knowledge by focusing in on two areas of insurance that often get overlooked but become super important as the CPG company scales, DNO or directors and officers insurance and stock throughput insurance, which come into play around conversations about fundraising and inventory respectively. Listen in as Danielle shares about why DNO insurance comes up during fundraising and why it's often a requirement of investors, when to start thinking about DNO insurance and what it covers, why stock throughput insurance is important and surprising areas where your inventory may be unprotected, how inventory is covered from an insurance perspective during freight transit at 3PL warehouses and why you might need insurance to protect it, examples of insurance claim and inventory loss scenarios where insurance can and cannot help, how to find the right insurance broker and why choosing a broker before shopping for policies is important, and more. This episode was sponsored by Amelia Risk. Hi, Danielle. Welcome to the show today. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so good to have you back on the show. The last episode that we did together, people really enjoyed and found a lot of value in. So I'm glad to have you back to continue our conversation. And we got to meet in person earlier this year, yeah. which was really fun. So 
just really great to have you here. And I'm wondering if to start us off, you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Amelia Risk. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me again. I am CRO and co-founder of Amelia Risk Insurance Brokers. We started Amelia in late 2019, and our focus is primarily CPG. I've worked at both boutique and international brokerages. And what I've found is that large brokers aren't very interested in paying a whole lot of attention to the needs of startups. There's a lot of touch points, and quite frankly, the revenue isn't super high at first as I'm sure that comes as no surprise. I also noticed that there was what was available to startups is a lot of one size fits all products that are designed to be highly transactional and provide little to no consultation to the founders. So with Amelia, we are here to bridge that gap and provide really good broker services and insurance expertise to startups who need it the most. I've worked with startups and emerging companies for my entire career and I really enjoy it. We use better technology so that we can improve the client's experience and ours. So allowing us to streamline various processes that we can provide true risk management advice and consultation that our clients need. Our goal is not to automate the client's experience. It is to automate a lot of the backend stuff that we have to do so that we can be with our clients and talk to them and be of service. I work with a lot of brands within the CPG uh, community, many from this community, which I just love. And most of my clients find themselves in more difficult or high risk categories from an insurance perspective, just like baby food, skincare, dietary supplements. And this is just due to the fact that folks are really out there innovating and iterating on traditional types of products, making them more functional and quite frankly, more interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I think that I can definitely attest to Danielle's expertise and the Amelia Risk team, because I think we must have connected around 2020, 2021, yeah. something like that. We met through the Startup CBG Slack and actually worked together on an insurance project. And it was I was in a situation working with a company where working with a traditional broker and traditional insurance company where they were like, we don't understand why you don't have that much revenue. Like they just didn't understand that we were in a startup mode and fundraising. And it was like, wait, what? this is there's nothing wrong with the business is at the phase that it's at. It's just smaller. And so connecting with you is such a breath of fresh air to be like, oh, OK, someone who understands the stage we're at can help us find policies that fit where we're at. So you've been my like speed dial contact since then being able to have you on the show multiple times and everything. It's just so helpful. And this is a way for us to just talk about on the show and provide some value and get ahead of some of these things. Because with insurance, you and I have talked about before, we often think of insurance when it's too late of, oh, shoot, I didn't have insurance for that. Or yeah. sometimes we're prompted by insurance when you're getting set up with a retailer or distributor and they ask for your certificate of insurance and they require certain minimums of coverage and you have to provide that certificate and then that prompts, okay, I need to get insurance. But then it's, what does it mean? The policy documents are so long and it's just a lot to navigate. So for today's conversation, I wanted us to talk about that beyond that certificate of insurance. Like once you have your initial like general liability insurance set up, which getting the right setup for that is really important. And we cover that a lot of that in the episode we recorded previously. So today I want to dig into kind of some of the more specifics insurances that you might not think of besides getting that certificate you send to people. So I wanted to hear from you when I talk about like beyond the COI certificate of insurance, what do you first think of these are areas or gaps that you often see clients be proactive in or end up having to be reactive in because they didn't have a solution in place? Yeah. So that's a really great question. And it's an interesting thing. I think that there are a lot of considerations beyond the certificate, but I think a lot of people are very focused on the certificate because that is the thing that is between them and getting on shelves, signing with distributors. So I totally get that. The certificate or a COI is simply just a proof of coverage. So it is a snapshot that shows third parties, I have insurance and this is the information about the insurance that is in force. What's in the policy though, the details where the rubber meets the road is not represented in the certificate. So in the event of a claim, you hope you have a really good policy, but that is like you said, covered in, in a different episode about 
whether or not the meat and potatoes of the insurance policy are even good. Beyond the certificate and what these retailers and distributors distributors are going to be asking for, I thought we could talk about two areas. So directors and officers liability or DNO, and then inventory insurance, which is most properly called stock throughput. These are less understood areas of an insurance program, particularly for startups that are really important for different reasons. Right. Yeah, that's super helpful. I love both of those areas because I think inventory is something that's easy to forget about that that, that even that is an option for insurance and then directors and and operators insurance like is an interesting area because again, it's often something that maybe you're prompted to when you're fundraising and maybe it's within your term sheets or something that investors are requiring you to have that insurance. What does it mean? So I'm curious if you could start us off on the fundraising side. Like if a brand is is going to eventually fundraise, if they're thinking about fundraising, can you talk about when they should start thinking about that policy? What does it mean? What does it include? Just a little bit more info about it. Yeah. Absolutely. So I know a lot of brands are interested in fundraising at some point, and they should consider DNO part of their future if that's the case. A lot of folks are bootstrapping, which is really awesome. I love to see it. But for those that are considering fundraising, DNO is a very important piece to think about. It is a policy that specifically covers the individual directors and officers of the company in their capacity as such. That's a mouthful. What that means from a practical perspective is that you're running a company, you're making decisions every day that impact said company. If you've raised funds and you're using other people's money in those decisions, and those shareholders come back and allege that you mismanaged the funds or you made X, Y, and Z decisions, that were detrimental to the company, this is the policy that protects you from those allegations or lawsuits. In a nutshell, DNO policy protects you from shareholder claims of mismanagement. It's a very broad policy. We typically see that these types of claims come at transactions. So acquisition, IPO, bankruptcy, or maybe another round of funding. And a, a good DNO policy is really intended to protect the individuals, the board, and the entity. In terms of when brands need this or when founders should be thinking about this or if they need this, it really depends. It depends on the specific situation. It depends on your tolerance for risk. If you're doing a round of friends and family fundraising, I suppose it depends on how risk averse you are and who those friends and family members are. How likely are they going to bring a claim against you? Any sort of funding that is angels, seed, institutional funding, I would say definitely you want to think about this and be prepared that, like you said, Jesse, at certain points or certain fundraising levels, like Series A for sure, it's going to be required by investors. There is not a one-size-fits-all rule of thumb here. So it's best to chat out with a broker and, and understand where the risk lies. From a very technical perspective, your risk with discussing and, and the fundraising and the decisions that you're making really start at the time that you start fundraising. So what you don't want to do is wait until raise money on in 2023, let's say, and then wait until two months before you sell the company and then buy the DNO because the decisions that you made prior to that would not be insured. So you do want to think about this early. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to buy it right away. But don't wait until you've got a transaction happening to think about buying this. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so basically, just to put it in other terms, it's protecting you as the business owner. So if you have an investor who say they decide that you have mismanaged the funds somehow, or they don't agree with the decision that you make some some extreme protection, this basically means that you're personal assets and funds like aren't at risk because they're like, hey, you owe me XYZ amount because that's what it costs me as an investor because you're mismanaging my money. But then it's also protecting the investor, which is why it's required, because then if they lose their money because someone did mismanage it and that person doesn't have the funds to pay them back or the business doesn't, then the insurance kicks in and can protect their investment. That's exactly right. So this policy protects the individual's and their personal assets when they are individually named in a lawsuit. And the reason that investors like to see the DNO policy is that it is a vehicle for them to collect if and when something goes wrong. 
they want to know that there's a little bit of a backstop. Yeah, that makes sense. And the terms directors and officers, because those terms are often really used in startup world, does that just cover anyone who is in a leadership position? Does it cover like who you put on your state documentation? Who's your secretary of your company or whatever? I'm curious how broadly that term applies. Yeah, that's another really good question. So first, it depends on the policy. Every policy has its own definitions, but the ones that I have reviewed and seen and sold and uh, negotiated all are very broad. I haven't seen any that specifically list any directors and officers. They are not specifically scheduled on a policy. Most of the time, the definition is employees, interns even. So anyone that works at the company would be included on this policy. It does not limit it to people specifically named or in the bylaws or anything like that. Okay, that's really helpful. And if you are fundraising in, for example, that you do want to get a DNO policy, like how soon should you like reach out to your broker to get that set up? Because like you said, if you want it to start to be active so that it's covering everything in time. So how long does it take to find the right policy? How much time would you allow for finding the right fit from a price and go over all the details? Yeah, so the underwriting process itself doesn't take very long. It depends on how quickly you want to move. If we get completed information and you want to move very quickly, it can be a matter of days, maybe a few weeks. But I would say that having a discussion with your broker about what your fundraising plans are and what that looks like, what the specifics look like, when are you closing the rounds, how much are they, who are they from, those types of things should be discussed and determined when is DNO a priority for you. But if you already know that DNO is a priority, I budget two to three weeks for a very comfortable time frame. Nice. That's super helpful. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add on DNO before we switch gears into inventory? No, I don't think so. I'd say it's not as scary as it sounds. None of this is, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I would say don't be afraid to talk about it. I think sometimes the folks have this fear that if they talk to an insurance broker and they show any interest in something, they're going to be forced to buy that particular thing. And that's not always the case. Don't be afraid to be educated on these things and toy with the idea of, is this important to me or is this not? It might not be today and that's totally okay, but I I would recommend having this conversation if you're interested in fundraising. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm really glad that we included this section on this because I, from my background with some startups that have raised money, I just think that it's such an important policy to think about and have on your radar, even if you're not ready to buy it yet, just to know that it's going to come down the road and know what it kind of does. I really appreciate you explaining that a little bit to us in in words that we all understand because it like you said it's really intimidating yeah on the inventory stock throughput side can you explain to us a little bit more about what this covers and then we can dig into some specific instances where it might cover but just a recap of what this does what we're trying to protect and the, the value that it brings to the startup world yeah so inventory insurance this is something that comes up a lot in my conversations with founders and it can feel very complicated. Supply chains are uh, inherently have a lot of moving parts. Knowing how your ingredients and your inventory, your finished goods are all insured and where and by whom and to what value takes a little bit of digging in to your particular risk. So firstly, I've said it before during our last discussion, and I will say it again, startups don't need everything right away. There are different points at which brands should consider various insurance policies. General liability is the most important piece of the puzzle to get right away. That covers third-party claims of bodily injury. Most distributors and retailers, as we've said, are going to require this of you. So that really does literally open doors. However, I think it's important to think about your inventory and how or if it is insured. This is a confusing area for a lot of my clients. I typically spend a fair amount of time going through this as I start working with folks. So I'll start with just defining it. So inventory insurance can be called a few different things. Ultimately, 
it is a property policy of some sort. You can insure inventory in a variety of ways, and there are more robust or more skim ways of doing that. So you can insure your inventory on a standard property policy, a cargo policy, or what is called stock throughput which is basically a combination of the two. A stock throughput policy is one that has two coverage parts, cargo or property in transit and location coverage for property sitting still at various locations, such as 3PLs or commands. The beauty of this policy, there are many beauties of this policy, but one of them is that it ensures your goods at any point in the supply chain and it eliminates the gaps in coverage that exist at particularly loading and unloading, because that's where a lot of claims happen. What we don't want is multiple insurance companies, multiple parties being involved and pointing fingers in the event of a claim. For instance, one insurer says, we were at the warehouse, the truck wasn't moving, it's not our policy. Another insurer says, was on the truck, it's not our policy. You can see how that can get pretty messy and, and frustrating. The stock throughput policy is designed to insure your property from A to Z, right? And if there has been direct physical loss or damage to the property. So think storage containers or pallets crushing other pallets or storage containers, perhaps infestation, uh, that depends on the policy. Spoilage, if there's a failure of refrigeration, a fire at a warehouse or on a truck, which we've seen, uh, or maybe theft. So there are a number of ways that this policy is or can be very robust, particularly compared to the other option, which is a standard property policy, which I'll get to in a moment. But spoilage is one thing to think about. Do you have a shelf-stable product? Do you have ingredients that are subject to spoilage if temperature controls fail? What we look at when evaluating a brand's specific needs is what happens to each of the ingredients or finished product while it's subject to different temperatures. For example, a former client of mine had a finished product that was shelf stable, but they had uh, it was a canned beverage with real fruit juice in it. The fruit juice, the raw materials that went into the finished product was not shelf stable. So we needed to add spoilage coverage for the incoming shipments of the raw materials to the Coman, even though their finished product was shelf stable. So we want the policy to cover those losses. Another piece of the robust nature of this type of policy is the valuation. This is where I would say property policies very much differ from stock throughput policies. Valuation of your product. Most property policies insure property at replacement cost. And I've even seen some that are at actual cash value, which is not good. For most brands, it's advantageous to insure your finished goods at selling price. Stock throughput policies take the selling price into consideration and you have a choice to insure at selling price or at invoice cost or at replacement cost, but it gives you some control over what you want to buy, what matters to you. How do you want to be reimbursed if you do have a loss? Another thing to think about is catastrophe losses or cat losses, as we call them. Things like flood, earthquake, wind. Property policies exclude cat losses like flood and earthquake. You have to buy those separately. Stock throughput policies can include these causes of loss, and they often carry higher deductibles. And there are regionally maybe some limitations but it's designed to be a much more comprehensive policy in that way. That's super interesting because so much of the cash of a startup is tied up in inventory. Yeah. And so to have a separate insurance policy that's basically covering what your cash is all tied up in makes a lot of sense. Because I think to your point about shipments and in transit, I even think about the times that I've tried to file a claim with a freight forwarder, or freight carrier, or something like that. And it's always so complicated and it's just like you're trying to prove everything. And then at the end of the day, you just spent hours trying to get a couple hundred bucks. And so I'm curious, like from thinking about like the freight in transit, like how do you evaluate that part of buying insurance for an individual load versus having a stock throughput policy? Like, how do you think through those where it makes sense? If you have a stock throughput policy, that does that mean you don't buy individual insurance policies when you're booking an LTL load, for example? Yeah. So this is part of what I get into with clients and figure out, first of all, what do their shipments look like? 
Some of my clients do just one or two, maybe three big production runs a year. Maybe it's worth it for them to just buy the insurance per shipment because there's not going to be that many throughout the policy year or the, the calendar year even. It may be cost effective to buy your own annual policy and not be paying for the insurance per shipment. And then the other thing aside from cost is really control over whether or not you're getting good coverage. I think product valuation is key here. The fact is that if you rely on third parties for insuring or protecting you, it means that you're giving up some control over whether or not that policy is even in force or has been renewed. Maybe it canceled for non-payment. Was it a comprehensive option in the first place? You really don't know what the other party has deemed unappropriate policy for them or for you. And I can almost guarantee that you would not be getting selling price on your finished goods through someone else's insurance policy, because there's virtually no way for the underwriter on the other end of that to underwrite for your product. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And adjacent to that would be like 3PL warehousing. So if you're using a 3PL or an external warehouse, is this something where you check? Do you ask a 3PL to send over their insurance? You can identify if there's gaps. Does this double over anything that they have when you add the, that warehouse to your policy? I'm curious about how when you use external warehouses owned by other people, how that fits into the policy. Yeah, so this is a really common one. My advice on that first and foremost is look at your contract, which sounds pretty simple, but more often than not, I find that they're not only not insuring my client's goods, but they're requiring my client or the, or the brand to carry their own insurance on the inventory. When and, and the same rule here applies, even if they are offering some insurance or guarantees, to what degree? And oftentimes, when they are responsible or say, yes, we will reimburse you for X amount of losses, it's a certain dollar amount per unit or per pallet that the client is getting. And it almost never would be, would make the client whole. So is it something? Maybe. But would it be properly insured? Likely not. And there may be exceptions to that, but I haven't seen them yet. So I would just recommend that folks look at the contracts and determine who is responsible here and, and what happens if there's a claim. What, how much money would I be owed if the other person is responsible? Are you a founder or critical operator spending too much time on bookkeeping, expense classification, and tweaking your financial model when you should be spending your time on customers and growth? Q Graphite. They are a full finance department as a service for early stage and growing CPG startups. Think of having a CFO, controller, and bookkeeper, but for the fraction of the cost of hiring even one internal team member. That's Graphite. The truth is that most CPG founders fail due to a lack of understanding of their unit economics, aka a lack of proper accounting and finance. To download their free financial model template, free chart of accounts template, and other resources, go to graphitefinancial.com CPG. Graphite is also offering a special discount just for our listeners of 8% off their accounting and forecasting services. Head to graphitefinancial.com slash CPG to claim your discount. That's graphite, G-R-A-P-H-I-T-E, financial.com slash CPG. And this makes me think about transit to distributors as well. And I'm curious if we have run into, for example, if a big distributor is coming and picking up at your facility and you've documented what you loaded on your truck and then you get a charge back that says, hey, we didn't receive a whole pallet. Does this kind of insurance help in those kind of instances as well? Or is that kind of a separate thing that you handle with your distributor? So that's a good question. I would say probably it's a separate thing you're handling with the distributor. Theft could be an issue here. It sounds like somewhere along the line, there was a mistake made or a miscommunication. But if there's evidence of direct physical loss or damage to the goods, meaning there's evidence that there was theft or uh, there's actual damage to the goods, then yes, this could certainly apply. 
but errors in taking inventory or product not being where it should doesn't sound like a stock throughput claim to me. But of course, it totally depends on what the specifics are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was just thinking about those distributor things that sometimes come up. And I'm curious too, that brings up like, what kind of documentation, and I'm sure there's good documentation practices in general for these types of claims, but what does this actually look like practically for you if you have one of these policies and you want to be able to file an effective claim? So what things do you think through? Is it taking pictures? Is it having your files in order? What sort of things should you have good records of to make sure that you can effectively file a claim since you're paying for a policy like this? Yeah, that's a really good question. With all claims insurance, we really like to know the who, what, when, where, why, right? As much as you can give us the information about what happened, when it happened, how much is subject to it, who was involved, and then absolutely yes, pictures. A lot of times the insurance company may want to see samples of the product. I did have a client who had a claim of crushed containers and they deemed their product unsellable. And an inspector came out to review the product and inspect random cases to see, was this in fact unsellable, even though it wasn't visibly crushed from the outside. So yeah, maintaining some of the product itself and not necessarily moving it. I know that can be hard because warehouses or ports or wherever the product is, they need it. They need to move it, right? It can't just sit wherever it is forever. But getting the insurance company or your broker involved as quickly as possible to understand what the best practices are with regard to dealing with product or disposing of it is really important. But I would say definitely document all of the specific details, the who, what, when, where, why with pictures is really helpful. Yeah, for sure. Because yeah, I think of freight deliveries in particular, where you get something, a box is crushed or open, and you're not going to be able to use it. And maybe you find out or you were sending it to someone and a day later, you find out, oh, yeah, we didn't receive that whole pallet. One of them was broken, and we just threw it away. And I'm like, no, pictures like sign the bill of lading that says that it wasn't all received or something. It's hard to do in the moment. Like it's so hard to remember, but that documentation is also key to have later so that you can yeah. actually draw on these policies that you right. have put in place. Mm -hmm. Totally. I feel like another question within this inventory piece is for folks that their inventory fluctuates a lot. What do you advise them as far as deciding how much inventory to have insurance for? Because it may change a lot throughout the year. Do you insure for the highest peak of the year? Is that too expensive? How do you talk through how much to insure for at given times? That is a question I get a lot. And ideally, you want the policy limit. Every policy has a limit, property and liability. So for a property policy, you want the limit to reflect the most amount of product you'd have at any given time. So for brands where this they are highly seasonal and that limit fluctuates dramatically, you don't want to be paying for insurance at a million dollars worth of insurance somewhere where sometimes you only have 20,000. What we ask for with very seasonal products where there's a lot of variability in the amount of products they'll have at any given time, what we want to do is look at the average amount and then the maximum amount. What we do is we give that to the underwriter so that it would be, you know, it is more risky from an insurance perspective to insure a company that has $5 million worth of stock all year round at this warehouse versus one that has $5 million worth of stock for one month of the year and then 500000 for the rest of the year, right? Because likely if there is a claim, the maximum that would be there would be closer to the average than it would the highest. So underwriters take that into consideration and they price it accordingly. So what we do when there is a lot of fluctuation is really just paint a picture for the underwriters to understand what this business looks like and price it in a way that reflects the true risk. But the, the short answer is you want to choose the highest amount of goods you'd have at any given time. 
because that's how much insurance you would need if you had a claim at a time when you had that amount there. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm wondering if I feel like in the past you've had some really good scenarios to walk through, like to help make this more concrete. Do you have some scenarios you could walk us through of either some claims or some losses? I think that'd be really helpful. Yeah, I do. We've seen a number of claims or concerns from our clients over the past few years with regard to inventory. It's one of the more frequent conversations that we have. I think, especially with the pandemic, the supply chains were just a total mess. I think a lot of people were feeling that. So one of our clients had three claims in a roughly six-month period of time, none of which were their fault. And the issues were largely in transit and at ports. So they had crushed containers. That was mostly it. There was one that was infestation. They did have stock throughput policy and they were fully reimbursed up to the limit of the policy for that. While claims are never fun, this one was a good outcome because the losses were fully insured. We've had a number of clients that have had leaking cans. This is probably half a dozen folks have come to me about this. That one is tricky because it really depends on what happened. All property losses depend on what's happened. But sometimes this is an issue with the can not being an appropriate fit for the beverage that's inside of it. What we look for, and that's really not my expertise, but What we look for is, has there been direct physical loss or damage to the product? If not, then that sounds like a manufacturing issue and something that needs to be rectified and and troubleshooted there. But if there has been direct physical loss to the product, then that would potentially be an insured loss. Another thing that typically comes up or has come up with a few folks is product that tastes off or the texture is off. Something isn't quite right with how it tastes. And I've had questions from folks around spoilage. That scenario is not an insured loss. That scenario is likely a manufacturing issue as well. So product that just doesn't taste quite right, or it doesn't come out the way that you wanted it to, that is not insurable under this type of policy. That is something that needs to be dealt with with the manufacturer. Again, there has to be direct physical loss to it. And the spoilage coverage, more often than not, but again, you have to really read into the policy that you're considering, is coverage when your product spoils because there was a mechanical failure of some sort of temperature control. Again, if you have shelf-stable ingredients and shelf-stable products, then spoilage would really not apply here. So there are a number of things that we see clients struggling with. Some are insurable, some are not insurable. It depends on what the situation is. And there are a number of ways to insure your property. Some are really good. Some are not so great ways. Not everyone needs a stock throughput policy right out of the gates. Many don't. There are some advantages to adding property to your existing general liability policy if that is available. There is sometimes some transit coverage that can be thrown in on property policies. I wouldn't say that they are extremely robust options, but not everybody needs this level right away. But I would say that knowing the landscape of options available to you and knowing the limitations of certain types of policies is really important. And understanding what's available to you, how your needs are going to change over time is also important. And so that you can make a decision that you're comfortable with and that you made because you knew all the information that was relevant to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think just knowing that down the road as your business has more shipments or more external warehouses, this may be on your roadmap. Maybe you don't need it now, but maybe you can have the conversation with your broker now and ask about property coverage because maybe that's enough for you. So yeah, there. and I definitely want to talk more about how to find the right broker to work with on all of these things, because I think that's super important. But I wanted to see, is there anything else in the stock throughput category that you wanted to talk through specifically before we jump into how to find the right person to help you navigate finding a policy? I think that covers it for stock throughput. I think that, yeah, it can be a complicated 
project to figure out who insures my product and how do I figure out the limits and just working through it all. But again, I think supply chains are complicated. And so that that process is sometimes necessary. Yeah. One last question that prompts me thinking about how we've had an exceptionally hot year here in the United States. And we've talked a lot about shelf stable. I was thinking about how I've seen more with manufacturers saying, hey, the, we know, I know the thing we manufacture for you is self stable, but I need you to sign a waiver that you're going to pick this up using a refrigerated truck because this you're just because your product shelf stable doesn't mean that it should be 110 degrees or 150 degrees inside the back of a hot truck. Are you seeing the temperature pieces and the seasonality? Even when you're dealing with shelf stable, these considerations still come into effect where you need to be thoughtful about how insurance might not cover it getting really hot, but it still might spoil your product. So you're going to need to make the appropriate arrangements. Yeah, this is coming up a lot. And I think we're in a moment where if from an, the insurance industry is addressing this too. What I'll say is spoilage coverage has to be specifically underwritten. So the underwriters look at on this type of policy anyway, on a stock throughput policy, the underwriter will ask questions about your product. They will ask questions about the transportation. So you have to show that you are caring for the product from a temperature control perspective. What wouldn't be possible is having a shelf-stable product that you don't control the temperature for because it's shelf-stable and you don't maybe use reefer trucks, and then getting the spoilage coverage. The, the underwriters are not going to ensure that. What they want to see when they're offering coverage for something like spoilage is that you're doing what you can to mitigate spoilage from happening in the first place. So that piece has to be there. So I'd say that for folks who have a product that's shelf stable and doesn't, you know, in your in someone's home require to be refrigerated, but they are worried about their product being damaged some way from extreme heat while in transit, you may want to look into getting a refrigeration truck. And I understand that there's a cost associated with that. But again, from an insurance perspective, the underwriters would need to see that you're doing that in order to offer insurance for it. Yeah, that makes sense. And on the flip side of getting frozen too, I've had a truck get stuck in a blizzard, shelf-stable product, but it still froze it to a way that when it thawed, right. it had spoiled. And now I'm like, okay, if there's going to be a blizzard, then we're going to send it in a reefer. Yeah, we saw that in, I think it was what, March 2021 in Texas. Yeah, so yeah, that's very interesting. That's all super helpful. And I think all of this highlights that having the right person to talk through this is really important because you've mentioned a lot how you can act as the go-between with the underwriters, how the people that are underwriting your policy and coming up with what it's going to look like are really important. But most of us are not equipped to talk directly to an underwriter, and that's where having a broker can come in. So can you talk us to a little bit about how do you find the right broker? Like what should someone look for? Obviously, we're going to talk about how to connect with Amelia Risk. And that's something that I highly recommend is finding a good broker partner. But for you, if someone's like, this seems really interesting, like I made this great connection at a show or something, are they the right broker for my business? What would you talk them through as far as making sure that broker is the right fit for their business? Yeah, great question. I have a lot of thoughts on this, obviously. So first, I would say there are a lot of one size fits all off the shelf products out there that and if I I could shout one thing from the rooftops, it would be to steer clear of these types of policies that are designed to be sold to everyone without a consultation with a broker to understand your unique risks. I don't love when I hear people advocating for simple and fast and transactional ways of obtaining insurance. Not that those things are not ideal. We all want simple and fast but ensuring your supply chain, ensuring your product, getting the right insurance for you can take a little bit of review, particularly on the inventory stuff. Property insurance is very nuanced and supply chains can be complicated. Getting good insurance that will make you whole in the event of a loss is it might take a conversation or two. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Selling policies on making it simple for a client is doing a bit of a disservice in my opinion. And again, not because I don't also want simplicity, but because doing it right might mean digging into the details. So I strongly recommend that folks work with a specialist in this space. And that means someone who's both a specialist in the insurance industry 
as well as the CPG industry. So you want someone first and foremost that understands insurance, work with a broker who has relevant commercial insurance expertise and experience. And secondly, one that specializes in the industry that you're in and can understand your business. Insurance brokers are not created equally and some have more experience and insurance knowledge than others. My recommendation is to find that out by getting on the phone with them and having a conversation and understanding what they do best and how they do it. And will I like working with this person? Typically, if you have a phone call, think you have a kind of a gut on that as far as how it feels to talk to them. And did you get your questions answered? Do you feel like you understand this process for you and your brand better? And then once you find someone that you feel knows what they're doing, you feel like you'll have a good working relationship with them, move forward with exclusively that broker. I know that sounds counterintuitive because people want to go get as many options as possible. And I think that's a good idea to do on the broker level, but not on the quote level. Long story short, it gets a little bit muddy on the back end when you have multiple brokers involved. So you definitely want to do your due diligence on your broker relationship and then let that broker go represent you to all the insurance companies that they can. Yeah, that's a really important point about do your shopping for your broker first and then have your broker help you do your shopping for your insurance policies, doing both at the same time. Because, yeah, it's confusing because then multiple people could be pinging the same insurance company and underwriters saying, hey, write up a policy for this company. And they're like, wait, who do I write this up for? And the brokers get blocked. So what happens in that case is the first one that got to that carrier is the broker that gets to quote it. So you might have the right insurance company with the wrong broker. You might have the right broker with a less than ideal insurance company because it was first come first serve. And oftentimes what you end up with is a bunch of different quotes, a bunch of different brokers with different formats for their proposals saying this is the best option for you. And now you're back to square one because you don't really know how to compare these brokers' proposals against one another. It can get a little bit messy. So I definitely recommend the due diligence process on the broker level. I would ask them to get on the phone and ask through all of your questions. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you can learn a lot from that intro call. I've unfortunately spoken with brokers that wouldn't even weren't even willing to get on the phone. They're like, don't worry about it. I've got your insurance. And I'm like, but I have questions. They're like, I'm too busy. And I'm like, they're like, your policy is fine. I'm like, "Mm, that doesn't make me like help me sleep at night. Like I want to be able to talk through things or when someone's just, hey, sign this policy. It's good. And I'm like, can we talk through what it means for my business? And so being able to have someone you can ask your questions to and that you're comfortable asking your questions to and talking about insurance you might need down the road without feeling pressured to have to purchase anything that you're not ready for is really important. Yeah. And I think I had a mentor many years ago tell me insurance brokers get paid on transactions, not on time. So that's why it might be difficult to have these lengthy conversations with some folks because they want to sell the policy. They want to get the sale. And I am not trying to be cynical here. There's a lot of wonderful people in my industry and there are a lot of wonderful brokers that will talk to you. So go find the ones that will talk to you because there are those out there. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of those, a great one that we know and are talking to right now. Tell us a little bit about what it looks like to work with Amelia Risk. How how do you generally start an engagement with folks? What does it look like to talk to your team? And then is it best to reach out via the website? How do people get in touch with you if they want to have a conversation? conversation. Yeah. Not surprisingly, I like to start off with a phone call uh, with everyone to better understand. I I like to hear about the product from the founders or the whoever I'm talking to with the brand from their perspective. I ask a lot about the product. I ask about the strategy of the business. I get to know things and I, I determine based on that what I think is important for me to be thinking about and talking about them. But then I really want to know what's going on right now that this is coming up and what are your specific needs and questions around this? Because I might have an idea of what I think you should have, but I think you have an idea of what you should have too. So that's the first step. I've had very few times where I would take on a client without first having an introduction call. It has happened, but it's not very common. And so in order to reach me, you can do a couple of things. My email is danielle at ameliarisk.com. That's A-M-E-L-I-A. R-I-S-K. You can go to our website and contact us there. You can email me or I'm also a part of the startup CPG Slack community. You can send me some DMs. 
I'm very active in that community. So I am monitoring conversations and I respond pretty quickly. So if that is the easiest way to find me, then that works. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I was going to mention that you're very active in the Slack and that's a great way to find you. And I would just add from a client experience perspective, because you noted that people are always looking to save time on these pieces and how saving time on setting up a out of the box policy really fast without talking to someone isn't the place to save time. But your team has found other ways to save time with really automating some of the you fill out information and then it rolls over into the next form that you fill out or something like that once you're getting into the actual policy side. So I know I was impressed and have been impressed with your team's use of technology to make things smoother on the back end. And I really appreciate that compared to some other insurance experiences where it was like hard to get the policy set up and not a lot of talking about what it included. And then it was still clunky to get it set up. And you've made it, you help people find the right policy And then you help use technology to make it smoother to actually get everything all signed and all the T's crossed and I's dotted and everything. Thank you. Yeah, we are really focusing on technology that helps make your process and our process easier, but not technology that reduces your options and streamlines you to one thing. I think it's really important that as a broker, we can still do our job and take your business to multiple insurance companies that we deem fit and see what those responses are. So it is, it's a pretty old industry. There are some really awesome disruptors in the space making brokers, software tools a little bit better, but we don't want to distill down the options and the policy to something that is a very quick and easy thing to get, but doesn't cover a whole lot and reduces the client's options. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you do a really good job of striking that balance. So I'll make sure to include the links to the website, your email, all of that in the show notes so that folks can go find there. And then again, find Danielle in the Startup CPG Slack community. That's a really great way to connect. This has been awesome. I I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through some kind of complicated topics. And I love that we're going to have this in our library for folks to be able to refer to as they navigate these topics. So just really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much. I love it. And I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. And it's always super enjoyable. This episode was sponsored by Amelia Risk. Thank you for listening in today. I'm so honored you joined me for this conversation and I love hearing from you all with feedback, suggestions, or if you just want to say hi at podcast at startupcpg.com or you can find me on LinkedIn. If you liked this episode, we'd love for you to share it with a friend or colleague, subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and maybe even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you aren't yet in our Slack community of founders and experts, We'd love to see you there. You can get the free invite at startupcpg.com and find all our other awesome resources there like webinars, databases, the blog, the magazine, and virtual and in-person events. And if you found yourself rocking out to our intro and outro music, which I do every single time, make sure to check out the Super Fantastics on Spotify. It's the band of our Startup CPG founder, Daniel Scharf. I'm Jesse Freitag, your host and producer, and on behalf of the whole team at Startup CPG, thank you for being here and see you next week.